Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast. It has certainly been a, a little bit since you've heard from us. Uh, I am Ryan Rosenthal, joined as always by Andre. Andre, where in the world are you? Are you in Sri Lanka? Are you in California? Are you in Mozambique, in Paris? Who? Where are you? Mozambique? No, I'm in San Diego, California. I just, I just got back uh, from my one month in Sri Lanka. It was a lovely time visiting my extended family, spending time with my grandmothers. The last week, of course, was a bit hectic with this lockdown that was imposed because of the worsening COVID situation there. But Ryan, I am back in San Diego. You are back in D.C., so I am ready to get back into the groove of things. Perfect. Well, we have a very interesting mini-series uh, that we're kickstarting with this episode. And so, uh, Andre, I'm going to let you kind of set it up because this is kind of your your brainchild, yeah. um, something that's kind of near and dear to your heart, as well as significant to um, both what you kind of look at every day, but also your family history. And so off to you. Yeah. So really, I couldn't even go on a vacation without doing something related to this podcast. Uh, so basically, what we'll be doing is we're going to be doing a mini series on Sri Lanka. The mini series will be titled Sri Lanka, Debt, Development and Democracy. It's going to look at Sri Lanka's political situation, Sri Lanka's position amidst U.S.-China competition and the broader return to great power competition. And one reason I wanted to do this is because Sri Lanka experienced a 30-year civil war between 1983 and 2009. Before 1983, Sri Lanka was often viewed as a model in Asia, a model of development, a model for politics, and so on. But the war sort of uh, caused things to go haywire a bit, as most wars do. But since 2009, Sri Lanka's had many goals of trying to develop post-conflict, develop its economy, develop infrastructure, and so on. And in the U.S., many foreign policymakers have viewed Sri Lanka as growing closer to China. They have viewed Sri Lanka as being in a quote-unquote debt trap of China, as China supports Sri Lanka significantly more politically and economically. Uh, In recent years, the United States has sought to make overtures to Sri Lanka. Most recently, Mike Pompeo visited Sri Lanka the week before the American elections, actually, in October of 2020, where he sought to make some talks with the Sri Lankan government. John Kerry also did the same thing in 2015. But still, Sri Lanka is viewed as being a bit more on the China side. But that is in the U.S. perspective. So with this miniseries, we have sought to reach out to folks who are actively in government, who were formerly in government, prominent journalists, prominent politicians, prominent figures who are key players in Sri Lankan landscape, trying to interview them to get their perspectives on this. Because too often we can sit in our ivory towers and talk about Sri Lanka, talk about these smaller countries, these developing countries, as if we know all about them, as if we know what the Sri Lankan people are thinking. But this miniseries is really going to dig into what the key players are thinking from a range and variety of perspectives. Because if we can understand the Sri Lanka story a bit better, the Sri Lankan goals of development, the Sri Lankan society and politics since the war ended, we can better understand other countries that are also falling into this sort of pitfall of U.S.-China competition. We can understand some other countries in Africa, Southeast Asia, Latin America a bit better, because these are a lot of countries that want to develop. And Sri Lanka is going to be an interesting case study. And this is a case study we're going to present to you on the burn bag. Absolutely. I think for for most of you listening, and many of you uh, happen to be Americans, uh, this is, uh, you know, while Sri Lanka may be a country you may not know a lot about or maybe haven't even heard of, 
uh, as Andre said, it is important, not only because it has its own history, political situation, economic crisis, as well as the kind of social um, upheavals we've seen over time. It is, again, a great case study when you're trying to understand uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative, naval power, also U.S.-China competition, and also how the United States positions itself abroad. And so, uh, again, I think that the individuals we're going to talk to all have different perspectives on uh, the very issues we're discussing and have different perspectives on the U.S. relationship, on the China relationship. And so, Andre, who are the individuals we're going to be talking to? What is this series actually going to look like? So we're going to be talking to some key politicians and some key leading figures uh, over the course of this podcast. I'm still actively working on wrangling in some more names. We're actively working with people in government right now to try and get them onto the podcast. So I can't reveal uh, any of those folks since we haven't recorded those interviews yet. But so far, we have former Sri Lankan Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe, who was prime minister between 2015 and 2019 and also prime minister several times before in the early 1990s and the early 2000s. So we've recorded an interview with him on US-China, on Sri Lanka's political developments and on Sri Lanka's economic development and his perspective on that. Now, uh, Mr. Wickremesinghe is in opposition to the current government, the Rajapaksa government. So hearing his perspective will certainly be very interesting. We're actively working on getting some individuals from the current Rajapaksa government in as well to get those perspectives in. But we have uh, Mr. Wickremesinghe recorded, former Sri Lankan Prime Minister, a very great session, a very great interview. Uh, certainly a very interesting personality if you look up a bit more about him on Wikipedia or any of the news sites. He is generally seen as being a bit more pro-West or at least in terms of foreign policy, trying to balance out a lot of the foreign influences, a lot of how Sri Lanka interacts with other great powers. But this episode right now, we have a great overview, a great introduction of what you need to know about Sri Lanka, what you need to know about Sri Lanka's political landscape since 2009, the state of its economic development since 2009, and basically a bit of background about where we are in Sri Lanka right now uh, with Odetha Jayasinghe. She is a senior journalist, and she's had years of, exper of experience in the Sri Lankan media industry, a 20-year career. Uh, she was the deputy editor of Sri Lanka's first and only financial and business newspaper, the Daily Financial Times, and has won awards for her journalism. She has focused a lot on Sri Lanka's uh, political evolution, the economic challenges the country is facing, intercommunal tensions, governance issues, and even the Sri Lankan conflict. A great objective voice to introduce our audience to Sri Lanka, its political landscape, its and its economic landscape. So... I'll throw it over to that interview right now. It's a great session. So, Odita, could you please sort of give us a brief background on Sri Lanka's political landscape since the end of the Sri Lankan Civil War, which is basically 2009 through the present? Right. So this, this was a very interesting time because uh, the current prime minister, was president in 2005. He became president in 2005. And he, together with his brother, who is the current president, were the ones who sort of oversaw the end of the war in 2009. Of course, as we know, uh, when the war ended in 2009, it was very controversial. When the conflict ended, there were many uh, you know, accusations of human rights violations, of um, potential war crimes. And so it was a very contentious uh, time for Sri 
Sri Lanka. And also uh, it was sort of seen as a very positive, in, in a very positive light as well, because um, there were a lot of people who thought that, okay, well, finally, you know, Sri Lanka is this tiny island, has so much potential, has so much, you know, to offer the world. And maybe finally now that this uh, terrible war, which existed for nearly 27 years, uh, since about 1983 is finally over, uh, the government can now take steps forward. They can, you know, take forward policies to formulate reconciliation. They can um, take uh, decisions to improve growth. And this is a whole new beginning for Sri Lanka. Unfortunately, things didn't quite pan out the way that people expected. Uh, one of the key sort of issues was Sri Lanka also has a very, very complex uh, economic situation. And because Sri Lanka has not really uh, developed in the years since uh, independence, so we gained independence in 1948, uh, there was this huge push for, you know, um, infrastructure development uh, to get, you know, new roads, bridges, railways, ports, airports, um, you name it, Sri Lanka basically tried to build it all. And how it tried to do that was through uh, getting loans. A lot of these loans came from China, as well as other partners, right? So there was ADB, World Bank, Japan. Um, there was also from 2008 onwards, Sri Lanka went to international capital markets, and there was a lot of borrowing from that source as well. So this, this spiraled into what we sort of recognize as jobless growth, right? So there was a lot of infrastructure development, and there was a lot of growth that was based on public investment. So the government went and invested, and, and, and that spurred growth. But it didn't really result in any kind of genuine structural change and reforms that were needed to get the economy growing on a very sustainable path, right? So there was initially high growth, uh, about 8% uh, for the first, you know, in 2010, 11, 12, et cetera, things were really great. But then things gradually started to slow down. Uh, there were concerns about uh, debt, how we were going to repay that debt, uh, whether the infrastructure projects that were really happening were going to result in, in growth, um, you know, things like exports, investment, how are we going to attract that in a sustainable way. Um, then that also brought in geopolitical concerns. And of course, um, you know, I think Sri Lanka lost a golden opportunity to put forward reconciliation efforts, you know, to address these human rights concerns, to address minority concerns, to really bring together and build a Sri Lankan identity after 2009. And unfortunately, more sort of nationalistic uh, narratives took over politics. There was... Um, more, there wasn't sort of that sort of coming together that, that people had hoped for when the war came to an end. And so that continued. So in 2014, um, President Mahindra Rajpaksha, you know, was voted out of power. Uh, and then in 2015 to 2019, we had the opposition in power. Uh, and there was some progress on reconciliation during that time, but there were also, you know, structural reforms around the economy didn't really take off. Again, there was there was a lot of, you know, it's a stop, start, stop, start sort of policy initiatives. And then, of course, in 2019, we had the Easter Sunday attacks, which I think a lot of listeners may be aware of. Uh, and there was, you know, terrible, it was a terrible tragedy, it cost hundreds of lives. And it again reset Sri Lanka's um, political future to be more focused on national security. And then that sort of created the background for the current president to come into power. Um, so that is where we are now. So many of the aspects of that answer are going to be certainly outlined in this interview ahead. But I want to start with 
the two people you mentioned in the beginning of that answer, the prime minister and the president. You mentioned the prime minister, Mahinda Rajapaksa, was also president between 2005 and 2015, presided over the end of the war in a very controversial manner. His brother, Gotabe Rajapaksa, was his defense minister when he was president. Gotabe is now the president. But who exactly are the Rajapaksas? Are we to understand them as a family dynasty similar to the Bhutos in Pakistan or the Gandhis in India, or are they a bit different? Um, so one small point is that uh, Gotabi Rajapaksha was actually defense secretary, right? In Sri Lanka, the defense minister at that point mm, okay. was the president himself. So that, that so, so, but yes, they were very, very close. Um, so Sri Lanka, much like many other South Asian nations or other countries around the world, we have had our own set of political dynasties, right? Uh, so we have had, I think more prominently, the Bandar Naikas and the Sena Naikas were very prominent political families in our post-independence history. Um, and, and the Rajapakshas go back a long, long way. So Dia Rajapaksha, who is the current president father was a member of the State Council of Ceylon as far back as 1945. I mean, this was even before Sri Lanka gained independence, right? Um, but the family really came into prominence with the ascent of uh, Mahindra Rajapaksha's career. So he entered politics around 1968 uh, from the Sri Lanka Freedom Party, which was one of the two biggest political parties in Sri Lanka. So like the US has the Democrats and the Republicans, Sri Lanka had the UNP and the SLFP, right? So the UNP was seen as more of a center-right party. So a little bit, I think this is a bit of a dangerous um, alignment, but a little bit like the Republicans. And then you had the SLFP, the Sri Lanka Freedom Party, which was a center-left party. So a little bit more ideologically closer to uh, so the Democrats, right? And so then you had, uh, so, so he was, in fact, uh, I think in 1970, elected to parliament for the first time. He was the youngest parliamentarian in history, uh, at just 24 years old, and he maintained that record until his own son broke the the, the record um, decades later, uh, and and became a parliamentarian. And then he was, you know, he he rose to prominence in the 1990s. He was seen as a very moderate politician. He was uh, someone who championed rights, human rights, uh, in the in the early 1990s. Uh, and and so he, in 2004, he was sworn in very briefly uh, as prime minister, and in 2005 he came became president. And so. He is really the star that the Rajapaksha dynasty is built around, right? So it's his prominence, and I would argue that he is still the linchpin. Uh, and and uh, you know, he his 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 persona, I think, is something that no other political figure in Sri Lanka has ever achieved. You know, he he has a he has he has managed to sort of. Um, uh, he has he can command the kind of loyalty that I have never seen any politician command, honestly, uh, in, in my decades of political reporting. And I, I think that's really unique because he single handedly kind of defines what the Rajapaksha dynasty was up until this point. Right. And even now, he is by far the most popular brother right so it's so he is one of nine children so there is um so there's uh he so uh Mahindra Rajpaksha, Gotabe Rajpaksha, Basil Rajpaksha, Chama Rajpaksha. Uh Basil Rajpaksha is now the finance minister. Uh Chama Rajpaksha was at one point um the speaker earlier um before 2014. He is now uh, a cabinet minister. So you have this very sort of very powerful, very, very prominent family. And of course, Mahindra Rajpaksha's son, Nama Rajpaksha, is also a cabinet minister and is uh, sort of seen as very much being groomed to take over after his father retires. So there's, there's a very, very uh, interesting sort of dynamic there. 
in terms of what kind of political family they are, I think they've sort of crafted their own distinct um distinct definition of, of what they represent. So they are very much um, uh, a populist party or, or, or a dynasty that sort of believes in populist politics. They are quite nationalistic. Uh, they are very strongly singular Buddhist, right? So they sort of play majoritarian politics. Um, and they are, and, and they are of course, big on national security, right? That's sort of like the, the core of, of what they offer. Um, and that's a very powerful message when you take Sri Lanka's history into consideration. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's super fascinating to hear that. And it sounds like all the Rajapaksa brothers are all over the government to an extent, right? They're all over the government, but... They, yeah. they are very prominent. They're very yes. prominent. I think uh, there are some jokes, I think, on social media about people thinking that Rajapaksas are a particular race or ethnicity, <laughs> just because everywhere you look in Sri Lankan government, there's a Rajapaksa. But it's it's certainly a very interesting history. But I want to dig into this four-year period between 2015 and 2019, where the Rajapaksas were sort of out of power. What was going on then? How did that happen? Um, so very interestingly, uh, a former president, Chandrika Bandana Kumar Tunga, who you know, we we know as uh, the world's first prime minister, woman prime minister's daughter, right? Uh, she was president from 1994 for about 12 years. And it was very much when she was the leader of the SLFP that Mahindra Rajapaksha's career also uh, um, sort of went to the next level, shall we say. And he, he, he became a, a very, very pol- prominent politician in Sri Lanka. Um, so she was um, sort of, I think the the one of the key things, I mean, you can't really talk about the 2015 to 2019 years without really understanding that there were very big concerns around sort of the economy, uh, human rights, of course, nepotism, corruption that came about during, say, the second term of um, President Mahindra Rajpaksha, right? So there were a lot of concerns that Sri Lanka was, you know, sort of um, going down this um, this sort of dangerous path of, of being a little bit more repressive, a little bit more draconian. And this was a, a great worry to, to a great many people because Sri Lanka is also, you know, one of Asia's oldest democracies. We, we have a long tradition of peaceful transitions of power, peaceful elections. I mean, even during the 27-year-old the war, there was always, always, you know, elections. I mean, of course, there, there were incidents, right? But, but by and large, people could go out and vote. They had the freedom to uh, pick the pick the politicians of their choice. Uh, there was uh, some freedom of media. There was some freedom for civil society to exist. So the the, the reduction of these spaces was very concerning to many people and especially minorities, right? Because there was this rise of. Um, very strong nationalistic Buddhist elements that were coming out. Uh, people were worried. There was, you know, clashes, anti-Muslim clashes. There was this organization called the Bodhubalasena that was coming into prominence during the second term of uh, the former president. And, and people were very concerned about this situation. And so the, as a reaction to that, they kind of wanted someone who was seen to be a bit more moderate, a bit more uh, friendly to the 
um, minorities and who was willing to give up some levels of executive power, right? Because in Sri Lanka, even though we have a Westminster parliamentary system, we also have this very interesting uh, coagulation of power to one person and the executive president is essentially uh, the most powerful institution in the country, right? So there was this movement to end the executive presidency, to bring in a new constitution and to sort of entrench democratic principles and institutions more strongly so that we would be protected from more draconian and sort of, um, uh, yeah, sort of, you know, dictator, dictatorial, shall I say, I venture that word very hesitantly, um, traits that politicians may, may sort of, um, you know, exhibit. Uh, so as a result of that, we had this very interesting sort of, you know, reversal where in 2014, uh, the then president, Mahindra Rajapaksha, actually called for early elections because he thought that he was so popular that he would actually win without any issue that it would be a cakewalk for him. And, and actually the opposite happened. And people just went out and they voted for a um, coalition opposition, right, which included... Uh, Mahindra Rajpaksha's general secretary who crossed over and joined the opposition. And that was, of course, uh, former president Maitripala Sirisena. And he was, uh, he ran for president and he won. And of course, in Sri Lanka, we have this tradition where once the president is of a certain party, usually uh, in the parliament, the public tends to vote that party into power, right? Because there has to be an alignment between the president and parliament. Otherwise, you're going to have a hung parliament and nothing is going to happen. Uh, in, in Sri Lanka's context, this was very interesting because we, we deviated a little bit from that tradition in 2015. Uh, and it was, in fact, the UNP, so former Prime Minister and Rikram Singh, who came into power as Prime Minister. So we had the president from one party and the Prime Minister and the majority of the private parliamentarians from a different party. And this was... Uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of sad looking back because it was, it had potential for a lot of, lot of positive things. But I think that division of, of, um, power between two different parties, you know, different political ideologies, different personalities didn't really work that well for us. Yeah, absolutely. And sorry, I think there's some fellow outside going on the street playing music and selling some food, but uh, I'm, I'm also in Sri Lanka right now for our audiences. But uh, yeah, you mentioned that sort of division of power, the Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe being from the UNP, the president being from the other party and sort of defecting from the Rajapaksa camp. There was this instance in 2018 that seemed a bit chaotic uh, with regards to where the relationship between the president and the prime minister sort of exploded in a very ugly way politically. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. So this was what triggered uh, a constitutional crisis in Sri Lanka. So basically, the president tried to unceremoniously sack the sitting prime minister and install um a new prime minister. And he couldn't do that because what happened in 2015 was quite pivotal, right? Because when the government's changed and the president's changed, what, uh, what, what one of the most critical things I think in Sri Lanka's constitutional history happened, and that was the passage of the 19th Amendment, right? So we amended our constitution and that meant that uh, a quite a big chunk of power that earlier resided with the executive president was taken away and given to parliament. And earlier, the, the executive president could sack 
parliament, like he could prorogue parliament, he could uh, install his prime minister, he had he had a great deal of power. But after the past passage of the 19th Amendment, this was changed and he could not, and there were restrictions placed on his power. So at that point, it was essentially a breach of Sri Lanka's constitution for him to, you know, suddenly sack. I mean, I still remember I was in office on that day. We got news at about, you know, five, six o'clock in the evening that something's going down and that, you know, there's security around the presidential secretariat. And very suddenly, you know, you saw Mahidraj Paksha arriving in a convoy and, you know, boom, he's sworn in as prime minister. And then parliament is uh, prorogued and you're sort of like, wait, 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 what's happening here? This is, this is the, so there were, in fact, there were two prime ministers. We had two prime ministers. So this was uh, ultimately turned, uh, this was ultimately uh, sorted out by the, by the Supreme Court of Sri Lanka, which said that it is the person, it is the leader of the party that has the most number of representatives in parliament, who is the prime minister, and not the person that is picked by the executive president. But it created, you know, about two months of great political instability at a time when we couldn't really afford it, right? Because Sri Lanka was under an IMF program at the time. We were going through a very uh, significant fiscal consolidation process. We were preparing uh, to repay debt and we were, you know, looking to go to international financial markets and and all of that just completely imploded because uh, obviously this sort of very ill-timed and ill-conceived crisis uh, completely destabilized everything, you know, the economy, uh, the, the, the political landscape, and critically Sri Lanka's, uh, you know, international image as being a law-abiding country, right, that 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 adheres to a constitution that respects law and order. And, and so that, that entire process was, was extremely uh, worrisome, I think, and, and it really uh, forced people to uh, confront the importance of our democracy and the importance of fighting for it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I recall watching the news during uh, those 52 days, I believe, and Two prime ministers is certainly an interesting thing to sort of grapple with. I remember the the, the old prime minister who was sacked, Ranil Wickremesinghe. He was just sitting in the prime minister's residence, uh, refusing yes, temple re- refusing to leave. Yeah. And then Rajapaksa was trying to run the government. And there were questions internationally: Do we recognize this new prime minister? Do we not? But there, basically, Wickremesinghe came back to power. He, the Supreme Court had ruled, and he was sworn in again. And you saw the Sirisena Wickramasinghe a government last one more year until we saw the Easter Sunday bombing. Yeah, correct. But what was critical was that the government then lost its two thirds majority, right? I mean, the, the two parties basically mm. went their separate ways. There was no coordination. It was really bad. And, and in many ways, a lot of people say that this uh, constitutional crisis was what laid the path for the very tragic Easter Sunday attacks. Um, because things like national intelligence, national security, et cetera, was in complete disarray. And that that um, that was was really uh, tragic because, uh, you know, the, the key people who were supposed to coordinate on these things got divided into different political camps. And, and that was very, very problematic. Yeah. Yeah. And. I mean, mind the Rajapaksa came back for those 52 days before the Supreme Court ruled as prime minister, but then he came back again as prime minister in 2019 in the aftermath of the Easter Sunday bombings because his brother Gotabe uh, won the presidency. Was the Easter Sunday bombings, was that direct, the direct catalyst in Gotabe's uh, election in 2019 or was it sort of 
a long time coming? Were those political roots laid a few years before? Uh, I would say a bit of both. Uh, I think that it was a long time coming in the sense that if you look at Sri Lanka's growth record from 2015 onwards, we were at about 5% growth, then it dipped about 3% growth. And then in 2019, we barely made like 2% growth. It was, I think, about 2.2% or something like that. So it was very, very low. Low. So there were, you know, the economy was um, seen as being weak. There was low growth. Uh, There were worries, of course, as usual, about debt and and Sri Lanka's sort of uh, future. Uh, governance was in absolute disarray. I think people were extremely frustrated because even the most basic levels of, of things were not moving forward. Uh, corruption was an issue. So there was there was a lot of discontent, certainly. Uh, and, and that is, I mean, you know, in any government, incumbency fatigue sets in, right? I mean, three, four years after a government comes into power, incumbency fatigue is, is the inheritance of every elected government. So that was definitely there. But I think what really pushed it over the edge and enabled Gotabi Rajpaksha to come into power with an overwhelming majority and then also for his his party to come in with an an almost two-thirds majority in parliament was very much the Easter tax because what, I mean, when I spoke with my contemporaries, I mean, I was born in 1983, right, the same year as Sri Lanka's war started. And until I was nearly 30, I didn't know what peace was in Sri Lanka. That was my reality, right? And a lot of people who grew up in that environment and who have now come across as sort of the core vote basis for for any party, one of the things that they were really, really happy about was that at least post-2009, their children, like our children, had, had could grow up in a peaceful Sri Lanka, right? Without suicide bombs, without going out and not knowing whether you were going to come home, right? And the fact that this was this 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 precious uh, sense of security was taken away by the Easter Sunday attacks was for many people absolutely a key point when they were making their decisions on who to vote for, right? Because they were like, no, we're not going back to that. We're not going to go back to the 1980s and the 1990s when there were bombs going off in Colombo almost every other month. And, you know, we we had, we had, we grew up in this sort of environment where like my parents, for example, they would never take the same transport to go to work, right? Because if one of them got caught in a suicide bomb, at least one parent would survive to raise the kids, right? We grew up in that kind of environment. I remember going to school and school getting closed and then us having to rush back to back home because there was um, there was a bomb blast or some kind of attack. Right. So so this is like very deeply set in the psyche of, of all Sri Lankans. I mean, that's that's like a it's like a no go zone. It's a deal breaker. Right. If any government. Yeah, yeah. If any government risks national security for whatever reason. They are gone. It's just, you know, it's it's almost as potent as, you know, Sri Lanka uh, is very proud of its universal health care and universal education, right? And that's why Sri Lanka also, despite being a developing country, also has, uh, you know, human development uh, indexes that are close to developed countries. And that's sacred. Like, it, it's like any government that comes into power and trips budget allocations for health care and education will get voted out. Right. And and I would say that even above that is national security for this particular generation. And that absolutely, I mean, I think, yes, it it definitely was the catalyst that um, it's sort of like, you know, how, you know, the wave builds and the the wave crests, right? The cresting of the wave was definitely the the Easter attacks. Yeah. And I think for so many of us Americans and a lot of our audience is rooted in the foreign policy establishment, the foreign policy community, the national security community for America. I mean, 
so many of our wars and our conflicts were overseas, abroad. We had the September 11th attacks. We've had some minor terror attacks as well, but so much of that was abroad. In Sri Lanka, for the Sri Lankan people, it was at home. I think you make a very... Yeah, it was on your you, doorstep. Yeah, a very powerful point in terms of your parents not taking the same transport because they weren't sure if there would be a bomb on that. My own family has had experiences where they've lost friends and so on. So I think that's a very... A key part to sort of keep in mind in terms of understanding Sri Lanka's politics and understanding the emphasis on national security and how I think Sri Lanka's grappled with the war and the aftermath of the war. But now sort of laying that aside, we've gone through in a very succinct and in-depth way, the political players and the political landscape of Sri Lanka as it's taken place over the last 10 years. But I want to now dig into post-war development and progress economically since the war ended. Before the war, I recall reading that Sri Lanka was often referred to as the model in Asia. It was referred to and seen as a model similar to how Singapore is now seen as a model. But the war, I think, halted a lot of that development and a lot of that progress. Is that an accurate thing to say? Yes, absolutely. But I would say it's not just the war. Yes, the war was responsible for a great deal, but I also think it was unwise um, decisions and bad policymaking and also, yeah, and Sri Lanka was always a bit of a donor darling, right? We've been referred to as a donor darling because we were seen as the sort of model um, South Asian or Asian uh, country. There was a lot of funding that came in the 1960s, 1970s to various uh, projects, irrigation dams, uh, what is famously known in Sri Lanka as the Mahavali Project, etc. And I think that made um, our political class quite complacent about its achievements that, you know, you could sit on your laurels quite a bit. You didn't really have to work very, very hard because we had a, because of free education and free healthcare, or I would say universal healthcare and universal education. We also had a very highly uh, educated workforce, right? Very competent. I mean, our literacy rates have always been in the 90s for the longest time. And so these were like, you know, so they sort of, I think, also cruised quite a bit. And, And also what is interesting is that during the war, Sri Lanka was going through its peak demographic period, right? So this generation was coming to its own. And and that was why even with the war going on, we consistently had like 5% growth, 6% growth, et cetera. Uh, what was interesting was that with the end of the war, there was also this, um, this this demographic dividend also came to an end or at least slowed down, right? So Sri Lanka actually has one of the fastest aging populations in Asia now. I think we're second to Japan. So there is this feeling that now we need economic development faster. So you know that old saying, get rich before you get old, right? So Sri Lanka has this challenge. We have to get rich before we get old. Of, you know, very high debt, of internal governance issues. Uh, Those are things that I think over the last decade or so, uh, policymakers have attempted to grapple with, but have not done so successfully. And when we look at post-war development and the progress of post-war development, has it been countrywide, for example? In the West, there's a big uh, emphasis on the North. 
with the Tamil dominant north? Is there as much development going on there as there is, for example, in the south, in the city of Colombo and the other urban areas? So I would refer to the statistics on this. Um, so if you take, for example, the statistics on uh, contribution to GDP, uh, the share of uh, GDP contribution that the Western province, which is the most developed area in the country, has made, has actually gradually reduced. So it was at a high of about 46, 47% uh, way back in 2009, 2010. That has gradually reduced to about 43, 44% now, I think, right? And correspondingly, the, the other regions have sort of tried to pick up a little bit. So the southern province, for example, is doing quite well. Uh, the northern province and the eastern province, which are the most war affected, they are lagging behind in comparison to other provinces, right? So even though there were moves to sort of establish uh, better infrastructure, etc., there is, I think, a need, this has been identified as well, that you need to set up, you know, better development initiatives, you have to develop human capital, you have to create jobs in those areas. Uh, there is a huge sort of uh, indebtedness issue, right? Because when these, these people sort of, you know, uh, they borrow loans and then they end up getting caught in sort of microfinance debt, for example. And so those things need to be addressed. Uh, there are also, you know, issues like war widows, uh, war-affected families who deserve and need special assistance. And uh, there have been, I think, a lot of uh, civil society organizations, et cetera, have tried, but it's not, you know, it, it, it's, very, it's very hard and, and it's a long process. Um, but in terms of human capital, what is interesting is that the southern province is actually leading, it's ahead of, despite being much poorer than the, the western province, it is leading in terms of human capital. And the northern province also is doing okay. The eastern province is actually the worst. And what is interesting in Sri Lanka is when you look at it in terms of um, human capital and human development, the women are, are quite, do, when it comes to learning outcomes, the women do quite well. Right. So we do have sort of uh, parity when it comes to primary school enrollment, university education, etc. So there are positives there. Of course, the negative there is uh, when it comes to the formal workforce, women still only make up about 34 percent. So we do have that disparity. But overall, there, there is this... Um, a lot of people feel that the foundation and the potential for growth exists in Sri Lanka. So the, it, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Definitely a mixed bag. And I, I now want to ask about economic damage that was done to Sri Lanka as a result of the Easter Sunday bombings in 2019, but also because of the current COVID situation. As I now interview you uh, virtually over Zoom, we're doing this virtually, one reason for which is because the country is in a lockdown right now and the country's economy has, it's, I feel like it's on the verge of collapse, at least from what I'm reading, what I'm observing. What type of damage has been done to the economy? What's the state of the Sri Lankan economy right now? Well, that that makes for very glum reading, certainly. Um, so, what we <laughs> yeah. what what is interesting about Sri Lanka is that um, if you take, for example, 2019, when the when the new president came into power, the current president came into power, he introduced these huge um, tax cuts, right? Because the uh, expectation was that with the tax cuts, the private sector would, uh, you know, get a boost. And, and Sri Lanka, because it's, it's a small country, you know, if we can get four to five sectors humming, 
um, you will have growth, right? So you take, for example, right now, our biggest foreign exchange is from remittances. And then you have uh, tourism. Tourism was an amazing, amazing asset for us because since the war ended, the tourism industry just boomed, right? It saw, you know, 16%, 20% growth year on year on year. And I think last year, or rather the year before the pandemic started, you know, we earned north of $4 billion, you know, and it was en route to uh, hit like $10 billion by about 2025. So it was it was an incredible, you know, benefit from the end of the war. And then, of course, we have apparel, which is about another $5 billion. And then, of course, we have, you know, the smaller things like tea and coconut and rubber plant, you know, um, commodity um, exports. Um, so the fact that, and, and so what the government thought was, okay, if we can, um, you know, get, mobilize more investment from the private sector, especially, and we can get sort of, say, critical industries like construction, again, apparel, uh, you know, get investment moving, increase exports, that will boost the economy and push forward growth. Now, this was a fairly okay plan, except it didn't factor in covid and so less than six months after these tax cuts, COVID hit, right? So the first case in Sri Lanka was, I think, identified around late February. And then by March, things were getting bad. And in April, there was like a full-on lockdown. And then, you know, we were trying to get our parliamentary elections out of the way, but they got postponed. So there was, there was like a real, real, you know, challenge in terms of governance, in terms of getting things sorted. Parliament couldn't meet so that they could, okay, you know, sort of uh, raising debt and certain debt payments and setting up of, you know, institutions, okaying appointments. Those are all things that are really, really needed, right? So, so the governance became became quite a bit of a challenge um and the the net result of that was you know covid the moment that it sort of wiped out our tourism industry essentially right and it made apparel much more difficult right i mean there has been some transition they are sort of trying to uh, manufacture more medical equipment and things like that, but but apparel also took a hit. And because consumption took a hit, right? I mean, you're not going to go out and buy fancy clothes when, when you're going through a pandemic, right? And our key markets were the EU and the US, right? The US is our single largest purchaser of apparel. And so when those markets tanked, that, that had huge impact back home here. Then our supply chains were disrupted because we get a lot of our supplies from China. Right. And so we could no longer produce to that extent. And so and, but we still had to repay our debt. Right. Uh, so that that was where that, that, you know, that balance, that very delicate, fine balance that we were maintaining, where we were earning just enough foreign exchange to be able to repay our debt. And, and one of the very critical things was that we were able to go to international capital markets to raise money to repay our debt, right? And in 2020, because of the internal struggles, um, all the rating, international rating agencies downgraded Sri Lanka, right, by two, <laughs> uh, two points, right? So, so two stratas rather. And that was, that was like a punch to the gut um, because it meant, it meant that, you know, Sri Lanka could not go to international capital markets or even if it went, it would have to pay massively high interest rates um, you know, to to raise the debt, uh, to 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 raise the capital that it needed to repay debt. So so that was what really sort of you know knocked uh, knocked us sideways and made it very very challenging to manage this external situation. So of course the the government promptly. I mean, we have had import restrictions since March of last year. 
And all of this was de- you know, directed at um, trying to uh, save as much forex as possible to repay our debt. And mind you, the, what is interesting is that a lot of people think that you know um, our, our debt is primarily from China, but the reality is that more than 45% of Sri Lanka's debt portfolio is actually made up of payments to international capital markets. So that's critical. Uh, and Sri Lanka has a reputation of never defaulting on debt. And so it is doing its very, very best to maintain it. And that's why you're seeing you're seeing these terrible headlines because of that, because we have all these restrictions and people are trying to manage with as little um, you know, reserves as possible. Yeah. And that's that's what has become very, very scary for us. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think uh, you, you mentioned the Chinese debt and the other debt, and I want to dig into that in a little bit. But I, you mentioned China, of course. I want to talk a bit about the Sri Lanka-China relationship because I feel like that might be a reason why Sri Lanka is now entering the radar of the United States. Our former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, visited Sri Lanka very suddenly the week before the U.S. elections were to actually take place in the end of October. And he met with uh, President Rajapaksa and there were some negotiations over some economic aid. But I, I do think that part of the reason the U.S. is now trying to enter the Sri Lankan sphere is because of China and China's relationship with Sri Lanka. What does this relationship actually look like here on the ground? Well, actually, before Pompeo, uh, John Kerry was in Sri Lanka way back in 2015. Yeah. Right. Uh, So, I I mean, obviously, Sri Lanka-U.S., relations run very, very deep, as do Sri Lanka-China relations, right? Um, You may already know that uh, Sri Lanka is actually the country that China signed its first trade pact with uh, way back under Mao, right? The Sri Lanka Rice Rubber Pact, um, which was signed when uh, Sri Mao Bandaranaike was uh, prime minister, uh, which was essentially that we would uh, they would give us rice and we would give them rubber. And that was sort of like the first sort of bartering system that was sort of seen as the first significant opening of the Chinese economy. Right. And that was with Sri Lanka. So that's how deep uh, Sri Lanka-China relations run. Um, but of course, they they sort of um, up the ante, as it were, um, even before the end of the war. I mean, as far, even as far back as 2005, 2006, uh, there were stronger, there were signs that there were going to be stronger relations and there were, you know, there was money flowing into big projects, even in, you know, around 2007 due to these big dams like the Morakaka and the project, et cetera, that was started before the end of the war. And um, then, you know, uh, of course, there was the Belt and Road Initiative, which Sri Lanka was part of because of its strategic location. And uh, th- those geographical importance was very, very important because, um, you know, on, on one hand, this famous string of pearls strategy of China, right? And Sri Lanka was a key point of that. I mean, Sri Lanka basically anchored that as far as South Asia was concerned. And China was always, uh, sorry, the US was very, very uh, aware of this, you know, for for, for decades as well. And they have also had a very strong presence and involvement in Sri Lanka. Of course, the, the argument is in the way that the involvement takes place, right? So in terms of U.S. policymakers' approach. I mean, as you mentioned, when Mark Pompeo was here, he, uh, you know, particularly remarked on Chinese debt and the uh, and and how it is sort of uh, potentially damaging to a country's sovereignty, etc. But I think what U.S. policymakers sort of overlook is the fact that 
you know, countries want to develop and they need to get funding to develop. And if that is not coming from, you know, one partner, they're definitely going to go looking for it in a, from a different partner. And they will definitely sort of balance those interests and, and, and challenges as, as they feel is necessary. Right. So so understanding that and, and also the U.S., at least since the end of the war, has had a very rights focused, minority focused approach uh, to Sri Lanka. And I think from about 2015 or so, they've realized that only that is not necessarily going to work for them. So they are they have sort of while working on those issues, they have also tried to sort of branch out into more economic, uh, you know, uh, avenues of trying to fund um, fund projects and things like that. It's just that China is doing it far, far more successfully than they are. Is it an incentives issue, for example? Like, is are there like less incentives to go for U.S. aid or is the U.S. even offering this aid just because there might be some conditions? on this aid, especially in terms of uh, politics, uh, human rights, and so on. And ch- there might be less conditions with Chinese aid. Yeah, I think it's it's sort of, you know, it's... It's it's a little hard to pin down, but it's it's sort of like so. For for example, um, under the previous administration, which was seen as far more uh, multilateral and far more open to sort of engaging with the U.S., right? Uh, th- there was a movement to try and engineer some kind of trade pact with the U.S., uh, similar to what the EU has with uh, developing countries like GSP+, right? So GSP+, is something that Sri Lanka has benefited from. And it is there across, you know, Thailand has it, Myanmar has it, uh, you know, military governments or otherwise, this this is something that is extended by the EU, right? And it has improved their engagement with these countries, right? Whereas with the U.S., yes, they also have their preferential trade um, policies, but the problem is it doesn't really fit in with Sri Lanka's economy, right? For example, like our exports are very, very minimal. They need to be diversified. They need to be expanded. You need to do massive amounts of retrenching and, you know, deployment of resources and restructuring in order to do things on that national level. And it will take, you know, half a decade to a decade for for, for those things to happen, right? So you can't really, so it's sort of like a square peg round hole situation, right? You do have policies that that the US wants to engage on, but, but it doesn't necessarily fit with the country they're trying to engage with, right? And I distinctly remember like the former trade minister at the time, he was trying to push the US to consider this and this just turned around and simply said, no, we're really sorry. Our administration in Washington is not interested in engaging so much with South Asia, you know, because President, former President Trump's policy was very more US focused, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the sort of- America first. Um, yeah, exactly. South Asia pivot or East Asia pivot that was sort of initiated by Obama uh, kind of fell by the wayside over the last administration. And that has its consequences, right? You can't simply, and, and especially with the pullout of uh, the U.S. from Afghanistan, uh, there, there's really, I, I think, a feeling that the U.S. will have to scramble and scramble fast uh, to try and reestablish uh, engagement with other countries because they have kind of ignored those initiatives and policies and, and, and diplomatic sort of engagement over the last half a decade or so, right? At least from 2015 onwards. So now they have to they have to make up for lost time and whether these governments would be necessarily receptive to that 
remains to be seen. I mean, even when it came to COVID, you take, for example, uh, vaccine diplomacy, right? China is streets ahead Sino of the Sino Farm is everywhere here in Sri Lanka. Yeah, exactly. Can't find right? a Pfizer and they donated yeah. free of charge. Yeah, exactly, right? And so these are the things like you need to be nimble. You need to adapt. You need to sort of structure policies that really have impact on the ground. And, and yes, of course, working with multilateral organizations is important. But the U.S. Um, vaccination drive was always seen as an afterthought, right? Because it was, oh, you know, it, the vaccine is given in the U.S. And then once at least 40 percent of their population is vaccinated, then they will ship out uh, vaccines through the WHO or to other developing countries, right? Whereas China was shipping out vaccines parallel to their people being vaccinated, right? So those are things that people see and people, you know, sort of, you know, they, they judge countries by. Those are, you know, uh, and I think those are the kind of um, initiatives that, that, that the U.S. really needs to pay attention to and, and, and um, do better. So now something I've seen with regards to Sri Lanka's relationship with China in a lot of Western mainstream uh, news publications has been the accusation that Sri Lanka is caught in a Chinese debt trap. And oftentimes what's been cited is this Hambantota port that's being constructed in the south of Sri Lanka or has been constructed. There's also this port city in Colombo. So my question to you is, in your view, is Sri Lanka actually caught in a Chinese debt trap? And what is, if not, uh, what are Americans in the foreign policy community getting wrong about this? Okay, so th- there is a uh, there is a huge difference between the Colombo Port City project and the Hambantota project, right? So, for example, so the big thing is uh, the Colombo Port, uh, the Port City is not based on debt. It's not loans. It's an investment, right? So I would be very cautious about lumping uh, these projects together because the Port City came as uh, an FDI project, $1.4 billion, and it is actually, I think, historically speaking, Lanka's largest FDI to date, right? So that that is that that functions as a private investment. Whereas the Hambantota port, as you very rightly said, was the result of a loan. And it has, uh, it, 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 uh, so this, this was something that happened during the 2015 period, right? So the, the, the Rajapaksha government has always maintained, they have always maintained that the plan was uh, feasible and that had they been uh, allowed to remain in power, that they would have never sold national assets in this manner. And that this was, this was not, that, that um, the, the port was capable of earning its keep and they were they had a repayment plan for that loan set in place but that was tossed out by the uh, administration that came into power in 2015 and that is why it got um, you know sort of offloaded as as it were um what is interesting and i think this is where policymakers really 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 need to watch the nuances of what happens on the ground is that when the the former administration went to china and and this whole you know deal as it were to hand over the port to a chinese company was coming together there were plenty of protests on the ground from sri lankans themselves who protested this and said that no you have to have if you absolutely need to offload this asset then call an open tender right make it global have whatever companies or countries want to come in bid and then do an evaluation and select don't just go with china right i mean it's still a bit of a 
closed door sort of thing as to why Sri Lanka chose to only go with China, what really happened there, right? Because the call on the ground was that this was across the board, right? This was trade unions, uh, political opposition, even private sector individuals who spoke up and said, no, we shouldn't just give it to China for the sake of, you know, relations that we need to be more broad-minded about it. Um, and then, of course, this decision was that this decision was made. There were several Chinese companies that were bidding for it, two were ultimately selected, and then out of that one was selected. And also the makeup of the of the deal was that the Sri Lanka Ports Authority, which is the government arm, uh, is part owner still of that, right? It's a minority shareholding, but it is there. Right. And there was there was an agreement that, you know, the port was not going to be used for militaristic or other sensitive, uh, uh, you know, sensitive tasks, that it was going to be a commercial port. And what is interesting is that, I mean, I covered this in 2017 when this was happening, was that the China, that China actually wanted to set up another investment zone adjacent to the port, right? And it never took off because there were so many protests on the ground. The villagers got out onto the streets. The religious leaders got out onto the streets. There were clashes. There were protests. There were, you know, and it, it never went past the foundation stone, right? That is, so there is not this, I mean, what I sort of, when I report on these things, I get very frustrated by this uh, narrative that countries are just sort of sitting and, you know, China is sort of, you know, shoving debt down their throat. That narrative is not necessarily true. Countries also have the agency to decide what they wish to do. And perhaps, yes, from certain perspectives, they're not necessarily making the soundest of decisions, but they are making the best that they can out of the situation that they find themselves in. And I think ignoring that point and sort of having this ivory tower complex where you think, oh, you know, China is the enemy, it's coming into all of these smaller countries and they're sort of doing this. I think that's a very dangerous, limiting, and um, in some ways misleading narrative to be part of, right? And this is not just in Sri Lanka. If you look across, you know, South Asia, East Asia, African countries, the Caribbean, you hear this narrative again and again and again from those countries saying, no, you know, developed countries do plenty of business with China, with Chinese firms, Chinese companies, Chinese state um, entities. But when a developing country does it, then it becomes this, you know, uh, cause for global headlines. And that's not fair, right? We should hear about about this, we should. I mean, I, I remember many years ago, I mean, again, around 2017, digging into the numbers and looking at Sri Lanka's debt profile. And I was like, oh, wait, no, the, the biggest chunk is actually international financial capital markets. But we don't really, you know, it's not highlighted enough. I suppose it's not sexy enough, but it's, it's really challenging to get those narratives out there. I think also because we don't really have media platforms that champion Southern, you know, journalists from the global South and allows them to tell their own stories, right? Um, it's still very much from, from, you know, a perspective that, that is out there and not, not based here. And especially in a country as small as Sri Lanka. So, so those are really, really challenging. And I think, I mean, foreign policy uh, aficionados or watchers or whoever your audience is, I think they really need to dig beneath these narratives and find out what's going on and why these things happen the way it is. So in, in the case of going back to the Hambantota port, the, the port was, uh, the agreement around the port 
was in fact um it 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 was uh, you know it it went through that entire process it it was presented uh, you know it, it there were there were calls even for it to be presented to parliament so that it would be a transparent you know it would be done as transparently as possible and the money that came from it went into our reserves right so it was used to sort of prop up reserves um so there are various sort of yeah i mean we can absolutely have a discussion around what is good and what is bad about it but i think people also need to see these other narratives i mean even when it came to the port city like earlier this year the the port city commission that had to be established to attract investment i mean there was i think more than a dozen uh rights petitions filed against the commission bill in the supreme court before it went into parliament and then it had to be changed like the the supreme court gave an order saying that certain aspects of that legislation had to be changed to be brought in line with sri lanka's constitution right so it's this this idea that you know developing countries are just sitting around and waiting for china to sort of you know bounce along with a checkbook is yeah <laughs> highly, highly um, unfair Yeah, and and part of the reason you know I'm doing this mini series is to speak to actual people on the ground in Sri Lanka who are reporting on this, who are working on these policy issues, and just providing this range of perspectives. Because in America, I mean, in all honesty, we often hear from the ivory tower, whether it's the think tank uh, sphere, the acad- academia, our mainstream journalists, and so on, who are reporting on these issues from an American perspective. And I think, I mean, my mission with this is to really. help us understand what's the sri lankan perspective what's the sri lankan agency in all of this and and i just want to ask another follow up uh, with regards to the debt question what does sri lanka's debt to china as a percentage of its overall debt look like for example what is its debt to japan the asian development bank the world bank market borrowings india what does that look like and do interest rates for these loans at all differ Uh, do they matter um okay so let me just add one small point to my previous uh, answer which i think is pertinent uh, if you look at the data right fdi numbers uh, compared to 2019 to 2020 fell by a third right and when you break down the numbers of where this fdi went it predominantly went to the us and europe right particularly areas like western europe So you really see how I mean it's a structural problem right like if you want developing countries to really tap into these opportunities then you have to make them accessible to countries and and yes I mean in a sense we also have to do the work I I fully acknowledge that we do need structural reforms we do need to change but it's also extremely difficult I mean things like you know increasing taxes um in the middle of a pandemic is is so challenging i mean doing state sector reform when one of the largest employers of sri lanka are the state sector right i think we have about uh, you know more more than i think one in 20 people in sri lanka is employed in the state sector right and if you take away their jobs at a time like this you know what what is the human cost of the, these changes right Uh, and that's why in many ways uh when this debt issue came up and it was sort of looming for a while um lots of people used to say okay look you know the sri lankan government desperately needs to go to the imf it is now essential cannot wait but the i but but the popular opinion 
I have in no way on either side here, right? I'm just making observations. But the popular opinion is that we shouldn't go to the IMF because the IMF will also obviously come with certain requirements uh, to their support. And that is going to result in sort of things like, you know, the import restrictions being taken away. Uh, and that will, you know, it will send the currency into free fall. Uh, you know, a lot of our imports will then become even more expensive. Cost of living will, you know, go through the roof. And, and the sort of social cost of that is going to be very, very, very difficult to manage. So, so these are the sort of realities that I think foreign policy experts may not necessarily um, look at. And I mean, certainly from, from, you know, those of us on the ground, we just feel like this is the perfect storm, right? We, we really, it's very difficult to find ways to move forward in this situation. And so that, that I think needs to be taken into consideration as well. So going back to your question, um, in terms of debt, so obviously, as I said, more than 45% or above 45% of our uh, debt portfolio is international capital markets. So this includes, you know, sovereign bonds uh, that have been issued since 2008 that are coming due now. And Sri Lanka's debt situation will continue. I mean, Sri Lanka will have to repay about $3.5 to $4 billion in debt up until about 2024. And then we have a small respite for a couple of years. And then from about 2027 onwards till about 2030, there is going to be another um, segment of debt that needs to be repaid, right? So this is a decade long problem. This is not a problem that's going to get resolved in the next you know, two years or whatever. Um, the in terms of the breakdown of debt, you Japan and ADB are next to international financial capital markets actually higher than China. So China makes up, I think, conservatively about 16% of uh, Sri Lanka's overall debt portfolio. What is interesting, though, about China is that, A, they have invested in very, very prominent projects, right? So highways, uh, you know, as we mentioned before, ports and airports and, you know, all these sort of big ticket projects. But, but that is China's policy everywhere in the world, right? Um, what is more concerning is that they also have unsolicited proposals, right, which come in. So even more than, I mean, Hambantota and Port City always get the sexy headlines, but really, you know, you have this issue in Sri Lanka. There is this thing called the Lotus Tower, which was initially supposed to be South Asia's tallest tower. Heaven only knows why we needed that, but it was an unsolicited project, which the previous government approved, and it is $210 million. I mean, heaven only knows why we needed such a, well, you know, completely, I mean, it's, it's, it, it beggars belief as to why uh, the government approved this project, right? I mean, those are the concerns. The fact that, you know, again, this has been highlighted numerous times before that when China comes into countries that have poor governance records or challenging government governance environments, that they then sort of, you know, um, encourage uh, corruption and, and uh, you know, malpractices. So these are the things that are the issue, right? I mean, you, you, you really look at these sort of, in, you know, um, not these are not sensible investments. I mean, you take, for example, the Southern Highway, okay, up to Gaul, it makes sense. Perhaps up to Matra, it makes sense. What was the logic for extending it all the way to Hambantota is beyond anyone's guess, right? Very so far away. Exactly, right? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make, I mean, it would have been better off, you know, constructing a highway to Kandy, which, which actually has commercial value, right? Then, of course, the issue of, you know, Sri Lanka's second international airport being stuck out in Hambantota, uh, 
Um, and again, you know, these white elephant projects. So those are the challenges, I think. Those are the things that you have to relook at and think. And, and that's really the tragedy of the situation is that if those funds were used more strategically, more prudently, they would have really contributed to Sri Lanka's growth. And I think that is where the missed opportunity is. Right. So not not this narrative that oh, China is always bad and China is always, you know, um, the enemy. That's not the narrative that we should be having. I think the conversation we should be having is how do we make the most of these these, um, you know, these uh, opportunities and how do we all use it to, to actually uh, improve development? Right. How do we use it to improve, say, you know, investment in education and housing and healthcare and and address these other challenges that we have? So how do we how do we shift that right so that's that's really where it is in terms of interest uh, of course these are closed door negotiations we don't really know um, so there is a so it's a mixed bag right so initially i think the first loans like for example sri lanka got its first coal power plant as a result of a Chinese loan. And I uh, remember writing about it back in the day because it broke down like a record number of times and there was a huge amount of controversy around it. And of course, you know, pollution and all of those other concerns. And um, and that that loan was considered to be concessional. Even the Habantara port, the first uh, tranche of it, I think since $360 million, that was considered to be a, um, a low interest loan, right? But of course, as uh, LIBOR changed, as you know, uh, global economic um, environment changed, then you had uh, a, an increase in, in interest rates. And also, there have been studies to show that when it comes to unsolicited projects, the interest on those loans can be a bit higher. And now what we're really seeing is because Sri Lanka is facing this foreign exchange crisis, last year, uh, Sri Lanka um, is negotiating a loan with China Development Bank. So the key lenders to Sri Lanka from China is China Exim Bank and the China Development Bank, right? Um, so China Development Bank uh, gave us, I think it was about $400 million initially to help us with the foreign exchange crisis. And then uh, there was supposed to be a second tranche that was supposed to come later uh, last year, but it didn't really materialize. And I think, again, we, we are hoping, or rather the Sri Lankan government is hoping, that some part of that, about $200 million or so, will come uh, before the third quarter of this year. So those seem to be, those, China seems to be approaching those sort of negotiations very much as a commercial transaction, right? Not necessarily as a, as a diplomatic handout. Uh, it's very much seen as a because the, the government was so so engagement with with China Development Bank has not been as easy as as the Sri Lankan government may have imagined, and they seem to be tracking Sri Lanka's macroeconomic fundamentals very very closely in deciding how much of uh, you know funding that they will support and whether they will get it back, et cetera, et cetera. So India also is. Uh, a very low. So India's relationship with Sri Lanka is quite interesting because um, it has been more grant based than loan based. So they have some they have some uh, investments in Sri Lanka, but what they have more of is they have Indian companies that operate in Sri Lanka. And of course, you know, they have very, very strong diplomatic ties. And of course, they have very strong ties to certain communities in Sri Lanka, like the Hill Country Tamils who were brought down during colonial times to uh, work on plantations, right? So, so they have that, that sort of, you know, very close link with Sri Lankan minorities. And um, so that is, so they, they have built houses. I think they've built like a huge number of houses 
houses in the north and east, houses in uh, the central part of Sri Lanka. Uh, they do fund infrastructure projects, but in in the sort of um, rundown of countries that have lent to Sri Lanka, India is actually very very low. Uh, it, it, I think it, it's not even in the top five, if I'm not mistaken. It's sort of very, yeah. So it's it's quite low. Um, the big, big sort of uh, the big guns are, are mostly uh, international cap- financial capital markets, and of course China and Japan. Okay. So now, as we end this conversation, my last question uh, is basically: in in a minute, what can the Sri Lankan story? reveal about other smaller countries in the Indo-Pacific, perhaps Africa, perhaps Latin America. Just very briefly, what can we sort of glimmer from the Sri Lankan story and what can we apply to these other situations? You've got to be aware of the ground situation. You've got to go in and you've got to do the analysis uh, and listen to the people. I My one minute take would be that. You've got to have a ground up approach and this top-down approach that is frequently followed by uh, big countries and superpowers, whatever you may call them, that's not enough. And, and these sort of assumptions that we make that, oh, you know, the different small countries are sort of, you know, we have this, uh, we, we are lumped in together. And in some ways that works, but in many ways it doesn't serve foreign policy specialists particularly well to generalize on that scale. So definitely get on the ground, um, you know, have your own eyes and ears and analysis and make up your own mind. That would be my take. Definitely. Well, Odetha, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great hour. This was a great uh, primer on Sri Lanka and its story, its political landscape, its economic landscape, and how Sri Lanka is really relating to the world. So thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Andre. It's been great. And wow, Andre, that was our episode with Uditha. Uh, really just a, a fascinating episode. I, I mean, I learned a lot. Uh, you, of course, know Sri Lanka very well and all the issues um, concerning it. Uh, but for me, you know, having not studied it very closely, of course, you know, I'm familiar with the Belt and Road Initiative, the, the quote unquote debt trap diplomacy China is engaging in, um, and also, you know, some of the, the economic um, crises facing the country, the ethno um, religious tension, ethno-communal tensions uh, in Sri Lanka. And so a really a, a great primer uh, in, to, begin, to begin this mini-series, to kind of kick it off, to provide a basically, you know, just an, an overview and a framing for our conversations with all the other individuals we're going to be talking to. And so um, I hope everyone who listened to it enjoyed it. Uh, Andre, I'm curious as to what your reactions are with your conversation. Yes, I mean, for a lot of folks, they might have heard about Sri Lanka's civil war, But a lot of people might not necessarily understand how Sri Lanka has progressed. And in terms of progress, I mean, how what's been happening since the end of the war in 2009. Uh, Something that I really appreciated Uritha saying was basically the fact that Sri Lankans have a lot of agency, have their own agency and how they want their country to develop, how they want their country to progress in the years ahead. I mean, when we're often talking about Sri, in those few articles that are written about Sri Lanka, its political situation, its economic situation, and often its relationship with China, they show up in our mainstream newspapers, our big publications. But we often hear about these things from American voices or non-Sri Lankan voices, right, Ryan? Like we talk about these smaller countries 
as I said from before, from oftentimes this ivory tower, Uditha also said a very similar thing. We talk about it from an ivory tower, perhaps in, you know, think tank world and our U.S. government world and so on. But actually hearing what journalists, what experts, what policymakers on the ground think about this, how they're leading on this issue is inherently very valuable and needs to be central to U.S. foreign policy. Uh, I think key to this is she sort of disputed the, the idea that Sri Lanka is in a debt trap. You've often heard the terms debt trap used uh, quite a bit in U.S. criticism of the Sri Lanka-China relationship. Uh, certainly we'll be hearing from other policymakers and other experts on whether they think Sri Lanka is in a debt trap. But so far, I think that key question is being disputed quite a bit uh, by those who are actually in Sri Lanka. However, there are still negatives to the Sri Lanka-China relationship from our perspective. But for the Sri Lankan people, there's there are some positives because they're actually developing. And you had to realize, as Urita said, for 30 years, the Sri Lankan people were experiencing this war, uh, whether it was in the north, in the northern areas of Sri Lanka significantly, uh, that was really the battle zones. But even in Colombo, there were suicide bombings that were occurring. War was sort of this fact of life. And Sri Lankans, they want they want to live in peace, but they also want to develop. And China is sort of opening this door to development. China is helping the Sri Lankan people accomplish its goal of development. So I, I think that is something we really had to keep in mind with how this is going to progress. Oh, I mean, un- undoubtedly. And uh, Andre, I mean, at a base level, this series is so important because most of the time we talk to Americans talking about other places. And in this instance, we're talking to Sri Lankans about Sri Lanka and who can you know talk about Sri Lanka better than Sri Lankans. And so really it's important, uh, I think, for us on the podcast and all, for all of you listening to kind of understand the perspective from which we, we talk to people. Um, and so this in particular is a, a great way to understand that it might not be uh, the, the view held by those in these countries may not be the, the view that the American perspective or even the Western perspective uh, is, you know, touting. And so um, as you listen to these episodes, just be aware and be cognizant of the perspectives, what they're saying and how that might differ from other um, people that are talking about these issues. Absolutely, because I mean, the guests on this podcast itself will likely disagree with themselves, uh, with the others who are on this podcast about where they see Sri Lanka going, how they perceive the Sri Lanka-China relationship, how they perceive the Sri Lanka-US relationship. But something Uditha said with regards to, I think, vaccine diplomacy sort of being symbolic of the broader nature of this diplomatic triangle I've said this before and what in the world, but the U.S. was lagging with vaccine diplomacy. China was really being very proactive with vaccine diplomacy. I saw it on the ground. Sinopharm vaccines were everywhere. Pfizer and Moderna were present, but you could hardly find it for the common person. And I think just that vaccine diplomacy is an interesting snapshot into how we view this diplomatic triangle. Uh but yeah, absolutely. I mean, we hear so much about Americans talking about these foreign countries, these other lands, these other peoples. Certainly, you know, many of these guests we have are experts, but they all have their cognizant, their implicit, their implicit biases, right, Ryan? They all have their implicit biases. And 
many and the folks we are speaking to are qualified or very qualified to speak about their own country, right? Sri Lankans have agency in their own destiny. And I think this podcast, the this the goal of this mini-series is to ultimately make US foreign policy better. We do know that there are some in the foreign policy community, in the national security community, who actually listen to us. So if you can learn a bit more about Sri Lanka and what Sri Lankans are actually thinking about this, that can inform the way in which we run our own foreign policy and what things we're actually cognizant of when we try to drive our own interests with regards to Sri Lanka, with regards to South Asia, with regards to the rest of the developing world. Because clearly there's something wrong with U.S. foreign policy. Clearly there's something wrong. Why is China making so many inroads into so much of the developing world? What are they doing? Certainly, there's many things they're doing that are wrong, that they're doing to you know, take advantage of some of these smaller countries. But the U.S. is not necessarily doing things right either. So how can we improve U.S. foreign policy? That's the goal of this podcast miniseries. That's the goal of this case study on Sri Lanka. And uh, we have a great episode coming up with former Sri Lankan Prime Minister Ronald Wickremesinghe, which will be the second episode of this miniseries. And we'll be making more announcements about new episodes regarding this miniseries as we confirm them, as we record them. So, folks, thank you so much for joining us. We hope this miniseries is going to be very educational. We'd love feedback. You can reach out to us on social media. And stay safe, get vaccinated, and be well. See you next time. <laughs>